when our oldest son, Mark, was in college, there was one weekend where Sharon and I were wondering, I wonder what Mark is up to uh, this weekend. We hadn't heard from him in a little while, which wasn't actually that unusual. And not long after we, we thought about that, a phone, came, a phone call came in on my cell phone. Now, I did not recognize the number, nor did I even recognize the area code. So I just let it go to voicemail. A few minutes later, message popped up. We listened to it. I'm going to play for you that voicemail. Yes, I actually kept this voicemail. I think you'll understand in a moment why. Take a listen. What would you do? <laughs> I was, of course, assuming that it was some kind of a joke or a prank. And so I Googled, and sure enough, Bail King in Las Vegas popped up. So I called the number. They answered. I asked for Albie. They said, please hold. It was seeming less and less like a joke by the moment. Albie came on the line, and, and, and we talked, and now, I wasn't sure if Albie himself was the Baal king. I wasn't sure if I was speaking with royalty or not. But Albie told me once again that my son, Mark Diamond, was there in a Las Vegas jail cell. Now, by this time, I had assumed it was just a case of mistaken identity, and I told him so. And he said, yeah, we get that a lot. usually from parents who had no idea their kids were even in Vegas. So I asked Albie, I said, well, what, what's he in for? Domestic violence and battery. And he said it with a tone that made me wonder if he was soon going to be referring to my son as the perp, you know, as they do on cop shows. So I said, Albie, let me call you back. So I hung up and, and I called my son's line. It rang several times before he finally answered. Hello. And I was unpleasantly surprised to hear in the background all kinds of activity, all kinds of conversations, phones ringing. And I was picturing the precinct house on Law and Order or, or Blue Bloods or something. And I said, Mark, it's Dad. Where, where are you, son? And he sighed and he said, Dad, I've got bad news. And my heart sank. I said, What is it, Mark? How bad is it? Where are you? He said, I'm at AutoZone by campus, Dad. The car broke down again. <laughs> and I said, oh, that is great news, son. <laughs> and he said, why is that great news, Dad? And of course, I explained to him the rest of the story. Perspective is everything, isn't it? I was never happier to pay a car repair bill than I was that day. <laughs> Perspective changes everything. Perspective means how we see things, our, our viewpoint, our, our outlook. Perspective is defined this way. It is defined as the appearance of things relative to one another, now catch this, as determined by the vantage point of the viewer. For example, 
Some of you here may actually know that I really enjoy hiking and backpacking up in the North Georgia mountains. And not long ago, I took a group of about a half dozen men, and we did an overnight backpack trip up on the Appalachian Trail. And one afternoon, we were going up a particularly steep mountain for a while. It was a, it was a big one. As we were going up, as we were trekking up its incline, it seemed huge. A couple hours later, and two mountains over from there, we came to this outcropping area where we had this incredible vista, not unlike what you see there, where we could see all the direction we came from in this incredible range. But when we looked down, I could see that mountain that only a couple hours earlier seemed so huge, but now seemed very small and insignificant relative to the vast range that we could see. Perspective changes things. And from the passage that was read this morning, this phenomenal passage of Scripture that we're going to unpack here, I believe that God is showing us something from a perspective that can change the way we live our life. It changed the way the course of my life has gone. Because Paul is telling believers that how we see our world and how we see the circumstances we're in, the trials that we're walking through, and the people that God puts in our path, how we see these things that are seen will be shaped by that which is unseen. As was read earlier, the end of chapter 4 says, so we fix our eyes not on that which is seen, but that which is unseen, because that which is seen is temporary, and that which is unseen is eternal. The challenge that Paul gives here and throughout chapter 5 is for God's people to have our lives shaped by that which matters for eternity. In this passage, we see the implications of life lived with an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective shapes us. An eternal perspective shapes how we see our present circumstances. Eternal perspective shapes how we see our priorities in life and our purpose. And the eternal perspective shapes how we see other people. We're going to unpack these. Let's start with circumstances. Throughout his, the letter to the Corinthians, Paul has been making the believers there in Corinth aware of the difficulties that he's been going through recently. In other sections of this epistles, he, he tells them about the multiple times that he has been imprisoned. He's talked about the number of times he has been flogged severely. He talks about his close encounters with death, that five different times he received the 39 lashes of the punisher's whip. Three times he was beaten with rods, he said. He talked about being pelted with stones. He talked about multiple times as he was living on the run, being shipwrecked. Are you getting a picture of Paul's life and experience that he was communicating to them. And so I imagine that Paul never told somebody when he was sharing the gospel with them, I, I'm sure Paul never said, come on, become a Christian. Life will be happy every day. All your troubles will be behind you. No, because first, he knew better. But also, if he did, his scars and many bruises told a very different story. But what does Paul say? Let's jump back into the passage that was read earlier. 2 Corinthians 4, starting with verse 16, he says, Therefore, in light of all of this, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, 
Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day for, and he describes it again, as our light and momentary troubles. They are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes, not on that which is seen, but that which is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. It's right there. In verse 18, we see the essence of what it means to live our life with an eternal perspective. We'll see that this life-altering mindset that changed the course of Paul's life as he fixed his eyes, not on that which was right in front of him, not on that which within his view, with all of its pain, with all of its uncertainties, with all of its troubles. He didn't fix his eyes on that which he could see, but rather, it says, he fixed his gaze on that which is unseen by human eyes. A little later in this message, we will talk about and answer the question, so what is eternal? What are we called to fix our eyes on? What is the unseen? But for now, let's talk about the seen. What is seen in our world? Well, for starters, what's seen are the circumstances that are all around us, the things that we are walking through in life. Now, unlike Paul, you're probably not facing persecution or possible imprisonment for your faith, at least not yet. But there are many things that we're walking through that are right in front of us, circumstances that are very real, very painful, very difficult. Some of us here are experiencing the deep pain of a fractured family, where we walk into a living room where we see a framed picture of the family back when everybody was together and back when everyone was smiling. But now, now when we look at that, those faces, we see deep pain and fractures and relational stress and all of our attempts, attempts at reconciliation are stiff-armed. That's something that some of us are walking through. I have friends in this room who have been professionally maligned and had their careers and their reputations threatened because... They took a stand for biblical truth. I have friends here who recently sat in a doctor's office only to have the doctor walk in and say, the blood work came back. And I'm afraid the news is not very good. For many of us, life circumstances can be very difficult. And the Apostle Paul was certainly no stranger to pain or suffering or difficulties or uncertainty while he wasn't blind to life's challenges, their impact on him, though, was dramatically altered by the reality of heaven and by the faithfulness of the Lord. In other words, he considered all those hardships as what? As light and momentary troubles only when compared to the weight of eternal glory. For Paul... It wasn't just a matter of positive thinking. He wasn't the kind of guy that said, hey, just put on a happy face, look on the bright side. Nor was Paul someone who just lived in denial. Rather, as we look in the first few verses of chapter 5, Paul speaks longingly about the promised reality of heaven. Throughout verses 1 through 8, just listen to some of the words and descriptions he uses. In these verses, Paul writes about an eternal house, 
a heavenly dwelling, one that is guaranteed, and where we will be home with the Lord. He uses words like longing and confident, which is why Paul can say with sincerity, we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart because why? What can death do? Death is only going to usher us sooner into glory with the Lord, which is where our hearts long to be anyway. But it's not just the promise of heaven that changes how we see and experience and walk through the challenges of life in the scene. It's also that God meets us in the midst of those challenges with his unseen presence. You know, in the midst of trials and difficulties that we face, it's very understandable that our prayer is, Lord, remove this. Get me out of this, right? We've been there. You've said that prayer. But God always answers, but he doesn't always answer by getting us out of the situation, but he often answers us by walking with us through it. This is illustrated so powerfully in the book of Daniel. When Daniel's three friends are sentenced to death, death in the fiery furnace by King Nebuchadnezzar because they obeyed God. And as Nebuchadnezzar was watching those three men that got thrown into the fiery furnace, he looked and was amazed because first they were walking around, but it wasn't just three when he saw. It was four. He saw four persons in there. Many believe that the fourth person was indeed the pre-incarnate Christ. Because part of God's process of delivering them from the fire was to walk with them in the fire. When I know that someone is suffering and walking through very difficult things, of course my first prayer is that God would remove the suffering. But I also pray that in the midst of it that God would show up and that they would sense the very clear, very real, very powerful presence of God in a very close way in the midst of their circumstances. I once heard Elizabeth Elliot say this. She said, oftentimes we don't realize that Christ is all we need until Christ is all we have. And it's often at those times that we recognize that he is enough. An eternal perspective shapes the way that we see our circumstances. But not only that, we see in verse 9 through 15 that an eternal perspective also shapes the way that we see our priorities in life and our purpose in life. Paul makes this very clear. Pick up in chapter 5, verse 9, where Paul says, so we make it our aim, we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. In other words, while we're still here, while we're still in the realm of the scene, while we're living and walking and talking on this side of heaven, God's got stuff for us to do, important stuff that pleases the heart of God. Now, parenthetically, I think we need to ask this question. Are there things that we can do that make us more pleasing to God or more lovable to Him or more acceptable? No. Because as believers, you can't improve on complete. But there are things that that we do that please His heart still. Things like living by faith and doing what He has called us to do in the power of the Spirit with pure motives. These please the heart of God the Father. And Paul is saying that 
because of what awaits us one day, our number one job now is to live for the king and to live for his kingdom. As Warren Wearsby said, that for Paul, heaven wasn't just a destination. It was a motivation. A few verses down, Paul further illustrates how his purpose has been forever changed. Verse 14 says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. Paul said he is compelled by the love of Christ demonstrated at the cross. Compelled. That's an interesting word, isn't it? We don't use it that often. In fact, it's not even used that many times in the Bible. But it's a strong word. It's also, the, the Greek word is syneko, and it, it's also translated as controls or, or constrains in a way that urges or pushes someone to action. Paul says, I'm cont- controlled, constrained by the love of Christ. Now, what's the opposite of controlled or constrained? I don't know, but I, what comes to my mind is loosened up or freed up from. And isn't it interesting, in this beautiful gospel irony, that the very thing that freed up Paul, the love of Christ, is now the very thing that controls him, the very thing that constrains him. The love of Christ compels Paul to live for Christ. Verse 15, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but live for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul is saying that Christ's love forever changes the trajectory of our priorities and our purpose in life so that our priorities and purpose would be lovingly replaced by his. Jesus challenges his followers with the same principle. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, listen to what Jesus tells his followers. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust don't destroy, and thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is going to be also. See, Jesus is calling his followers to an entirely different value system. He calls them to live for that which never depreciates. To prioritize that, that is never going to lose its value. And to store up treasures in heaven because that's where they last forever. Do you see it? Do you see the challenge for us here in this passage? The challenge for us is to no longer spend our life devoted to the things that don't last, but rather to invest our lives in the things that do last. So that begs the question we asked earlier. What does last? What are these things? What are these unseen, eternal treasures laid up in heaven? Well, from what I can see, when I look through Scripture, I count five things. Five things that last forever. Five treasures in heaven. It's not a long list. You might come up with the same list. God, His kingdom is an everlasting one. His word, His truth, our relationship with God and the souls of men and women. Five things. It's not a long list. But knowing this, knowing what lasts and matters for all of eternity, and then choosing to live for these things, that's the essence of living with an eternal perspective. So we have to ask ourselves, 
What am I living for? What are my priorities? What is my purpose? What are my treasures in life? What do I value the most? What are the things that I think about most? I mean, we can probably all answer that with the right answers, right? We all know the right answers. But when we think about what really drives us, what are we most passionate about? What are the things that occupy our thoughts? What compels us? Because these are the things that ultimately dictate the choices we make and the purpose of our life. Several years ago, I was asked to speak to a group of Major League Baseball players. I, I spoke at a couple chapel services for the New York Mets and the Philadelphia Phillies up at the Mets Stadium in New York. And when I spoke to them, I spoke on this topic of living with an eternal perspective. And as I talked about the trap of living for things like success or money or fame, I expected there to be a little defensiveness or resistance. And yet what I saw in these players' faces in their heads, they were nodding in agreement because a lot of them had achieved that. A lot of them had the, the fame. They had the multi-million dollar salaries. They had the all-star status and the World Series rings. Yet they were nodding because some of them had come to realize that those things don't ultimately satisfy. Those things aren't what life is about living for. And some of them who had become believers told me afterwards that they wanted their life and their career as a ball player to matter for what matters to God. An eternal perspective shapes how we see our priorities and our purpose in life. And finally, an eternal perspective shapes how we see people, how we see other people. Paul makes this crystal clear as we pick up in verses 16 and 17 where he writes, from now on, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, or as another translation says, we regard no one according to the flesh. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Many of us know that verse 17 well. We can quote it. I believe Johnny even mentioned it in his video that we saw earlier today. This truth brings incredible security to us, doesn't it? Incredible encouragement to know that God doesn't just make us better people. He makes us brand new people. God doesn't just reform us. He regenerates us. Verse 17 does bring us great joy. But did you catch the significance of verse 16? Verse 16, the previous verse, where Paul is saying that his eternal perspective shapes how he views other people in a way that's different than when it was before. He says, from now on. In other words, he used to view people according to the ways that we often do. How do we do that? Naturally. Usually by outward appearances, maybe by external human measurements that we put on people. We look at people and assess them. We look and say, I don't know, rich or poor, they look like they've got their life all together? Or are they more like me? You know, do they? What, what's their profession? What are their gifts and talents? Are they good looking? These are the things that we as humans naturally put on people as we tend to categorize them and we tend to classify them, if only in our mind, because we're doing it through the grid of that which we value. But when we live with an eternal perspective, this changes because our values grid changes. We begin to see people closer to 
how God sees them according to their spiritual need. Matthew 9 describes a time when Jesus was out. He was out and seeing crowds. It said he saw the multitude. And it says something interesting. When he saw the multitude, he felt something. What did he feel? He felt compassion for them. Why? Because he saw right into who they truly were, that they were distressed, that they were downcast. Now, I've often thought about this. I thought, I wonder if they looked that way. Did they show it on their faces? I tend to doubt it. The Scripture doesn't doesn't talk about that, but I tend to think that they may have looked a lot like us. They may have been well-dressed. They may have had smiles on their faces. They may have looked like life was going well. But Jesus didn't look at the externals. He saw them as they truly were. He saw the heart of their issue because they, as it says, they were like sheep who needed him as their shepherd. He saw their real need. He saw their spiritual condition because he saw them through the lens of an eternal perspective. Down in Central America, in the freshwater lakes and the rivers there, there's a very unique fish that's inhabited there. It's called the four-eyed fish. We're going to show you a picture of this guy. It's a very interesting fella. He doesn't really have four eyes. He has two eyes, but each of his eyes has two pupils, one on top of the other. This allows him to float on the surface of the water and see what's going on above while simultaneously being able to focus on what's happening underneath. That's really cool. That's a really neat trait. It's fascinating. But if you think about it, when we live with an eternal perspective, we've got something in common with this little guy. Because, sure, we're able to see not just what the externals are, not just their appearance or or the image that they try really hard to display to us, but we're instead far more interested in what is going on beneath the surface, far more interested in their spiritual condition. Do they know Christ? C.S. Lewis once gave a sermon called The Weight of Glory. He, of course, took that from the passage that we're using this morning. And in this sermon, he says something very challenging. Very challenging. He says this. You and I have never talked to a mere mortal. You and I have never met a mere mortal. What he's saying is that every single person we ever encounter, every single person we will ever meet, everybody we know is going to spend eternity Somewhere, either with Christ in glorious heaven or separated from God in hell. And if we really see people as God does and we have compassion for them as God does, then we're going to want to do something about helping them know Christ as we do. We'll cherish this privileged opportunity that the Scripture talks about that we have, that we get to be part of this this ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20, it says that we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, is the appeal on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, isn't this one of the highest callings we could ever have? To be 
Christ's ambassador? We, as his ambassador, we get to represent the Lord. We get to represent the king of the unseen kingdom. But who are we representing the king to? To the citizens of the seen. Our message as ambassadors is the gospel. Our message is a message of reconciliation. Reconciling the king to the world through the sacrifice that the king made for them. Now, not only do ambassadors represent the king and the kingdom in our word and in our message, but also in our character. What an honor. What a privilege. What a responsibility. Are we worthy of this? Not on our own. Not on our own, we're not. And yet, he has called us to this. He has chosen us for this. He has qualified us as believers to represent him as his ambassador. And we can depend upon his Holy Spirit to empower us to be effective ambassadors for Christ to those he puts in our path. And just as an eternal perspective shapes how we see our circumstances and shapes how we see our purpose in life, an eternal perspective also shapes how we see other people. A friend of mine a number of years ago when his daughter was still quite young, when she was in preschool, he took her to the store one day. And as they were walking into the store in the lobby, they had one of those old-fashioned vending machines. Not the, kind, not the electronic kind, but the kind where you put a quarter in and you have to turn the crank, right? And this one had one of these large glass cases. And inside that large glass case... There were dozens and dozens of those little clear plastic bubbles, and each one of those had a cheap little toy or trinket in it. Remember those? Well, this little girl that caught her attention, her eyes lit up when she saw that. She, of course, asked her daddy for a quarter, and he said, tell you what, if you're patient while we're shopping, when we're leaving, I'll give you a quarter, and you can get one. So she was so happy when they made their way out of the store. She took that quarter, she turned the crank, And she didn't want to wait. She wasn't patient enough to wait for it to to come out the chute. She opened the chute, and she she stuck her, her hand in there to grab it as soon as she could. Now, she wasn't hurt, but she got her hand stuck, and she couldn't pull it out. And the only time it hurt was when her dad tried to pull her wrist out, so he stopped. But she was scared because of this. She was afraid that she was stuck, so she began crying, and soon Other people came around, everybody offering a way to help, but nothing did. Finally, the manager, who heard the tears, came out, assessed the situation. He went back into the store and soon came out with a bottle of lotion and a little plastic syringe. And he was able to squirt some of that lotion up around her wrist, and her her, her hand soon came out. And the people, of course, sighed in relief as her tears stopped. But those sighs of relief quickly changed to laughter. Even Bob, my friend, laughed as he looked down and saw what everybody saw at the same time. Then when her hand came out, she had a death grip on that bubble. (laughs) And everybody was laughing because they knew all she had to do was let go of that, and her hand would have come right out. But how often are we just like her? How often... Are we holding on tightly to things that we think are of such great value, but in reality, in light of eternity, they're only of such short-term worth? 
I don't know what those things are for you, the things that, that hold our attention, the things that, that we look to for joy, for fulfillment, for purpose. Perhaps today he may be calling you to loosen your grip on that. As we close, I want to encourage you to do something later today. It might be something that you do and you talk about over lunch today if you're going to lunch with friends or family or if you're by yourself thinking about this, this question. In light of what we talked about this morning and in light of the things that last for eternity, consider this. What is one or two things that you can do to prioritize or further invest in that which lasts for eternity? You might think about it in terms of things like your gifts and your talents, the things that God has given you. How are ways that you can use your gifts or talents for the kingdom? How are ways you can use your spiritual gift for the way of the reason he gave us our spiritual gift to build up his kingdom? You might think of it in terms of treasures. What are ways that you can strategically use the resources that God has given you to further invest in things that matter in God's economy? The other one is time, our time. And this can be tricky, can't it? Do you ever wonder if you run your calendar or if your calendar actually runs you? We, we are so busy with thing after thing and activity after activity that sometimes it's those things that we're doing that actually shape our values rather than the other way around. It doesn't mean that the things that we're involved with are wrong or bad. But an eternal perspective will shape the way we even see those things because perhaps God may want to use you in the things that you're already doing to be his ambassador, maybe to the other parents on your kids' travel ball team. Or if you're like me and we're empty nesters, guys on my tennis team, God will use us. He will use us sometimes in the relationships that we're around every day. If we live life for the unseen, instead of for the seen, God will take our ordinary lives and do extraordinary things with us. And if we live life for the unseen instead of the seen, he will take the seemingly insignificant circumstances that we're in and use them in deeply significant ways. If we can loosen our grip on that which is seen, that which is temporary, will be freed up to grab onto and hold onto that which is eternal. And as Jesus says, we will be storing up treasures in heaven. Let's pray. Oh, good Father, everything that we talked about this morning is only possible because of what we celebrated last week. Lord, without your your death, without your resurrection, we would be on our own to figure out our life, to figure out purpose and meaning and priorities. But you've given that to us. You've gone ahead. You've prepared a place for us in your great kingdom. What a grace. Lord, as a response of gratitude for your gracious gift of new life, we want to live our lives for you, for your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would lead us, and even today, give us courage to take steps that you are leading us to do, Father. And even in this, we're completely dependent upon your empowerment to follow through. And for this is even a grace. And for that, we're thankful in Christ's name. Amen.